um, Micah, we're going to close out Micah chapter 7 today, uh, finishing the, the minor prophet Micah. Let's take our, our hearts to the Lord with a message entitled, uh, Who is Like Our God? That's the title of the message, Who is Like Our God? And so with that, Father, we do pray uh, that you would take our hearts collectively captive. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Renew us, Lord. Refresh us. Pour your spirit out upon us. Take us, God, and teach us. You have said in your word uh, that we should take your yoke upon you and learn from you and learn of you, uh, for you are gentle and lowly, meek, humble of heart. And so, Lord, it's our, our desire to, to learn today, and not only to learn, but to live a life that's well-pleasing to you. So we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Micah chapter 7, you're there, I trust, and in this chapter you discover the prophet both grieving and glorifying God. Uh, he, he sees God's faithfulness as a light that just shines in what would otherwise be darkness. There's kind of a hue of Job chapter 13 and verse 15 found within this chapter that though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You know, regardless of what comes my way, I know that God is good. And ladies and gentlemen, this is such a fundamental, such a foundational element that needs to be attached, anchored in our lives. The fact that God is good. You know, that Psalm 73, uh, you know, truly God is good. And, and as for me, I almost slipped, he said, until I went into the sanctuary of God, till I was reminded of the eternal purposes uh, and, and an eternal perspective, you know, with God and, and realized that God is good. Therefore, I will trust in him. I will be careful to give glory to him. Or perhaps we find in this chapter some overtones of Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Not looking to or finding my fulfillment in the things of this world. I will joy in the Lord or rejoice in the Lord and joy in the God of my salvation. This overarching resolve to trust in the Lord. A refusal, come what may, to turn from him. A refusal to turn from him. Uh, I will only and forever trust in him. That's the heart of, of what we have here. Now, let's remember that in chapter 6, it was as if God had called his people into the courtroom. In the end, the case was clear. God had been only good to them, yet they had sinned increasingly and abundantly toward him. And the short is that his righteousness would be vindicated, therefore judgment was coming. And so as chapter 7 opens, we see the prophets both his concession and his confession that God is just and accurate in his accusation, the result uh, being within himself this grievous kind of lamentation. Uh, Micah, if, if you read through this uh, book, you discover one thing that is not, with no ambiguity, there's a, no uh, uncertainty that Micah is not an, an unfeeling kind of man. Uh, he's not unmoved. He's not unmotivated by the judgment which is to come upon the people of God. And so here in chapter 7, as the, kind of the curtain draws back, he shares 
his sorrow, this kind of wail of woe, if you will. So let's look at it. Beginning in the very first verse, he says, Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. You you get the idea, don't you? If you were with us and you you look back in chapter 6 of verses 10 through 12, the Lord speaks of the lack of integrity found within the nation, uh, the deceitfulness, the violence, everyone seeking to exploit, you know, and take advantage of others. In verse 16, he speaks of the idolatries and the wicked works of two of the most ungodly kings in all of Israel's history and how now they have adopted their ways collectively, nationally. And so now Micah cries out, woe is me. Why? Because the people, the prophets, the politicians, even the priesthood, they're all polluted through paganism and this pursuit of prosperity. But rather than, than disconnect or disassociate himself through two degrees of separation, he's allowing the impact to pain him personally. We might say that he sees this situation through the eyes of God. The problems within the people and the pain their pollution is causing. He says, I am like those who gather summer fruits, gleaning vintage grapes. There's no cluster or first ripe fruit. The idea is that he's looking for, for something. Well, in this case, for someone. They're the one gleaning the fruits, the one walking through the vineyard or the, the fields in the summer. They're looking for something. Micah is kind of taking that and applying it to his looking for someone who would be good, someone godly within the nation. He's not finding anyone. There's nothing good remaining in the fields during the summer. Even so, he says, there's no one good remaining in Judah. No fruit, you understand. No fruit left to glean or gather in. Sin has left the nation completely, totally desolate. I want you to notice, he says, there is no cluster to eat or first ripe fruit which my soul desires. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you're a a note taker, a margin etcher, uh, I'm going to add word circler at some point. Word circler, that's a good one. Um, But uh, this is the deceitfulness of sin. That's what I would kind of etch in the margin outside there. This is the deceitfulness of sin. It promises luxury but will leave you in poverty inwardly. Sin always leaves you unsatisfied. Do you see that? He's looking for something, not finding it. Looking for something more than what there is. Oh, now sin may leave you temporarily gratified but never truly satisfied. It never fulfills. It always leaves us empty and desolate. And in verse two, he says, the faithful man has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. 
that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. And the great man utters his evil desire, and so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Well, those are the two words that come into focus for us, right? Punishment and perplexity. The idea being, he says it plainly, that the time of judgment is upon them. And we're almost reminded here as we read the passage of that section of Scripture in the book of Genesis that deals with Abraham when he's interceding on behalf of Sodom. And he had interceded before the Lord such to the extent that if even ten righteous men could be found in the city that he would spare the entire city of Sodom for just ten righteous men or ten men who feared God. But judgment fell. Why? Well, we read here in verse 2, it is much, like this, much the same. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. The nation had become so wicked that he cannot find so much as a single honest man. He says, they all, these are categoric, right? They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. Or to understand that another way, listen, you can't trust anybody. That's what he's saying. Dishonesty and greed rules the land. He says, the prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. The great man utters his evil desire. So what do they do? They all scheme together. When he says that they successfully do evil with both hands, you know, today we might say it like, you know, hey man, they're going at it with both hands or, you know, they're all in. Um, they're giving it all they've got. And it's not to do good or to honor God. But they're giving it all they got. They're going at it with both hands so as to gain through deceit and bribery, favor being bought in the justice system. It's kind of the, um, if you're a, a note taker, you want to write a scripture there beside the, it's kind of the Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 22 syndrome that says they are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. How sad is that? Truth be told, this is exactly the opposite of where God would have us to be as his people. It was to the Romans that Paul made it plain when he said, I want you to be wise in what is good and simple. Now the word simple just means without knowledge or innocent concerning evil. You know, if we would only learn to seek first the kingdom of God, half as much as we pursue our own gain, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, we would change the world. Amen. He says, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. In other words, these princes, these judges, the priests, those whom you should and could generally count on to be upright, he says they're like briars, man. They're like thorns. They, they wound you. They tear at you, ensnare you as an unsuspecting passerby or, or victim, if you will. Now, 
Here's the thing. If this represents the best of the land, you see that? Then what does that say of the rest in the land? The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is like the thorn hedge. But ladies and gentlemen, there is a principle that the Bible makes clear. And that is that he holds, that God holds within his hand a cup, a wine cup of his wrath. And when the sin or iniquity or transgression, you, you know, we can get into the semantics of it, but when the sin of a people fill that cup to the brim, somehow and in some way, when people sin, it begins to add to this cup of wrath that he has. And when it fills to the brim, God, the Bible teaches, will press the brim of that cup to the lips of the disobedient, rebellious, and sinful people, and they will be forced to drink down his wrath to the dregs. You know, people feel like, because here in verse 4 he says that time is upon you, right? People feel like they're getting away with sin. How often people interpret the patience of God as the approval of God. He gives us a season in which to repent, but the time will come. He says it here, the day of your watchman, the prophets, the things the prophets have been warning you of. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Now in verse five, he says, do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For a son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men at his own household. Therefore, verse 7, I will look to the Lord and I will wait for the God of my salvation. Well, Micah is highlighting here the fact that sin, uh, that selfishness, has become so rampant within the nation that even personal relationships had crumbled among the people of God. You couldn't trust a friend. You couldn't confide in a companion. Even personal relationships, relatives, you know, we're at war with one another. Quick question, and let's bring this up to speed a little bit. How, how do you feel, I want you to think about this, how do you feel about the culture to which you have been called? Do you believe that today you can, as a general rule, take a person's word for whatever? Let, let, me, let me put it another way. Can you, as a general rule, always believe maybe perhaps what the media reports to you? If you hear it on the radio, can you take it as true? Well, surely then, if you find it on the internet, you can, find, you can trust it to be fact. I'm getting some LOLOLOLs out of that. Listen, here's the point. 
We live in an agenda-driven, self-serving, I may say sinful, culture. Listen, I wouldn't encourage you to take anyone's word for anything. Yeah, I mean, yes, there are folks out there who still have integrity. I trust I'm with a number of them right here today. But comparatively, they are few and far between. Even pastors, even preachers, listen, I I hope uh, that you you don't believe it just, just because I say it. Now, surely I'll never intentionally lead you in a direction that would be unhealthy or unwise, but what I'm saying is search the word for yourself. Make it your aim to understand the precepts and principles of the Bible within their context. It will. You guys hear me say this all the time, like Paul said to Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, one who's rightly dividing the word of truth. It will serve you well, and it will keep you. Let me say this, to the positive, you will be blessed. To the negative, it will keep you out of all kinds of trouble. But the point in this passage is that sin will separate friends and can even fracture the family unit. Okay? Now that's the basic interpretation. Sin will separate friends. It will even can fracture the family unit. But I want to draw out an application here for you from the end of verse 5. He says, guard your doors, or guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. He's speaking here of the fact that they couldn't even depend upon their own spouse to hold their best interest at heart. Okay? But I want to segue from that into something that I think is worth addressing for just a minute. And that is the tendency that some people can have to place their spouse upon this pedestal and set them in such a place in their heart that they expect them to be something for them that they can never be. Okay, They place expectations upon them that are simply impossible for them to live up to, and then they blame them when they fail. Guys, this is not an altogether uncommon kind of scenario. In brief, they want their spouse, they're looking to their spouse to kind of meet the deepest needs of the inner recesses of their heart. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're married today, God bless you. I just want you to know that no one can ever do that for you. No one can do that for you. Only Christ can meet that need. Okay, If you look to your spouse to be for you what only Jesus can be for you, then you're setting yourself up for failure in your relationship. You'll feel let down, disappointed. You'll feel neglected, leading to frustration and exasperation. Okay? And so you'll read this marriage book, uh, you'll go to that marriage seminar, all of which are good within their appropriate context, right, in the rightful place, but you'll hear about all of these wonderful marriages, you'll read of all these loving relationships, and it only makes you think your relationship is all the worse. And you're wondering what's going wrong, and the harder you work, the more frustrated you become. Why? 
because your spouse can never truly satisfy you any more than anything else in this world or in this life can. Yes, you will be, you know, you will share more intimate kinds of things with them. You'll allow yourself to be more vulnerable with them. These things will help fortify your bonds together relationally, absolutely. But don't lose sight of the fact that only the Lord can truly satisfy and bring fulfillment and contentment to your heart. Don't lean on your spouse for those things that only your Savior can provide. Does that make sense? Pray for your spouse, but look to the Lord. Learn as a husband and as a wife to seek first the kingdom of God. Listen, when you get married, it does not annul the mandate to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might, with all your soul. Love the Lord first and foremost, and then you can enjoy one another with all your faults, with all your frailties as you travel together toward heaven, okay? But if you're expecting your spouse to be God and your marriage to be heaven, ladies and gentlemen, you are destined for disappointment and disillusionment, okay? Now, when we read through this section here, that's all I'm going to say about all that. I just wanted to segue into that for just a minute. But if this section sounds familiar, it's because Jesus referred to it, right? Back uh, in, in verse 6, when he spoke of what commitment to him could cost you. How that Christ divides people. Uh, in another place, I think it's Amos, but I'm not sure, uh, he poses the question, can two walk together lest they be agreed? And uh, the answer is no. The idea is if you're headed one way in Christ and your friends or your family are headed another way, then even though you may be able to remain close to one another physically, spiritually you'll divide. Does that make sense? But Micah is so taken aback, so blown away by the fact that he cannot look to or trust in anyone. He says, therefore, it's in verse 7, you can underline it, therefore I will look to the Lord. I will, and by the way, definitely underline the God of my salvation, yeah? Uh, my God will hear me. I have a question for you. Verse 7, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, uh, the answer is yes. Right? I mean, we got to keep the... Listen, it's not a good... When we're coming out of the context of the previous verses into the seventh verse, it is not a good thing when there is not so much as one single honorable or trustworthy person that you can go to or lean on. Right? He's saying, I can't find anyone, so I'll go to the Lord. So in a certain respect, it's not a, this is not a good situation. But on the other hand, God can take something bad and turn it for good because it's driving Micah now to seek the Lord exclusively. Now that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing to turn to the God of your salvation. He will hear you. 
He will be there for you. Uh, He will fulfill you. Why? Because he is faithful to you. Others may may let you down. Uh, God will always be there for you. So, in verse 8, we read, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. What's the point here? Uh, It's a principle that we find displayed throughout the scriptures, and that is this, that God's man may fall, but God will always raise him up, okay? Uh, When we sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to us. But I want you to notice something here that Micah recognizes, something that we might call contingent, okay, to the restorative work of God, And it's in verse 9. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. What we have here is a heart of confession and repentance. Listen, was Micah the one in sin? Not specifically, but he was willing to bear the responsibility He would identify personally with the people's sin. He's confessing on behalf of the nation. Now, when you read the book of Daniel, you find Daniel did much the same thing. He's abandoning himself to the truth and the consequences of their sin. Now, here's something I want you to see and consider. Micah was not under... God's judgment personally, was he? But the nation was collectively of which he was a part. Here's my point. People like to think that their sin doesn't affect anyone else. Uh, That's a lie. It most definitely does. There were godly people in the northern kingdom of Israel when they were carried off into Assyria And there were some godly people in Judah when they were taken into Babylon. But the overall sins of the people were so overwhelming that when God's judgment fell nationally, it would impact that remnant that was still godly. You see, our sin always impacts others, even inadvertently, okay? But what an example that we see Micah setting for us You know, even as we, listen, I mean, there's a lot of parallels to what he was going through in the culture to which God has called you. 
You, you know, here we are in the thick of an ungodly, sin-infested kind of culture. Oh, you may not personally uh, contribute to the pornography industry or, 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 you know, sex trafficking industry. You may not personally uh, be dealing, you know, methamphetamine or drugs or be a part of some sort of uh, illegal, illicit activity. Or, the, you know, you may not personally uh, support the abortion of babies or, you know, whatever the case may be, but we're in the midst of, we're associated with a nation that's all about those things, okay? Calling good evil and evil good in the name of unbridled freedom. Oh, how we need to confess our sins and turn from our wicked ways and cast ourselves upon the merciful, redeeming work of God. Micah had confidence in God's salvation and their vindication before their enemies. Their situation was dark, but the Lord would be their light and bring them out of that dark place through his redeeming work. He says, then though, when he's talking about she's the neighboring nations, then those who gloated over them would be ashamed. The tables would be turned. God would punish the nations that abused them. Okay. Now, isn't the question in verse 10 interesting? I, uh, I found it so, uh, Whenever the child of God is going through tough times, the, the world is quick to mock. You know, where is the Lord your God? The psalmist said, my tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? You know, you've always talked about how great God is and all that he's done for you, all that he does for you. Well, where is he now? You know, why isn't he helping you? Uh, why or how could he allow such a thing to happen to you? That's all the same thing. Where is the Lord your God? On and on it goes. But the natural man can't discern spiritual matters. Listen, God is at work. He will vindicate his own. He will deal decisively with the ungodly. Now, in verse 11, we read, in that day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the rivers, from the sea, or from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their, their deeds. All he's saying here is that the, the land is, will be desolate, but God will redeem and restore his people. He will regather his people from all over the earth. Now, ultimately, I believe this will be fulfilled in uh, the millennial kingdom of Christ. We'll see this again here. Look at verse 14. He says, shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your heritage who dwell in who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, uh, rich uh, grazing lands for their livestock. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, notice he says, I will show them wonders. So Micah implores the Lord to shepherd his people once again, to lead them into green pastures, to feed them as in the days of old. And in verse 15, God assures the prophet that he will. 
that the day is coming when he will regather Israel again. He will be recognized and realized as a God of wonders once more, just as, as in the days of the Exodus. And this is why, uh, another reason why I believe this is coming in the millennial kingdom when he restores and regathers them miraculously and there will be wonders and signs, you see. And again, and so he's pointing to this messianic reign when Christ will regather them from all over the earth. Now, uh, at verse 16, the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might and they shall put their hand over their mouth and their ears shall be death, and they shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth, and they shall be afraid of the Lord our God. In other words, when God restores the nation of Israel, those who oppose them uh, will realize the error of their ways. Seeing God's uh, greatness and restoration of the nation will cause them to respect and revere the Lord in a way previously they had not. Uh, they will see the power and love of God at work on behalf of Israel. And now let's read this final portion here. And who he says, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Now again, if verses 18 and 19 aren't underlined, highlighted, circled, make it so. Who is a God like you? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? The answer is, there is no one like our God. By the way, uh, this is a fitting into the book. The name Micah actually means who is like God, or who is like Yahweh. And so he, he's bringing the, the book to a close, and he points out now... Um, Again, if just if you're a note taker, you want to write things down out there, and it kind of depends on how you, you, you divide it up, but he points out at least six attributes of God here in this incredibly rich uh, but short passage of Scripture. Number one, back in verse 18, you know, who is like our God? Number one, he pardons iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Ladies and gentlemen, don't phase out on me here, man. Stay tuned in, dial in, kind of stretch out if you need to, but this is the whole point of the gospel. You see, I mean, it's the reason Christ died for you and for me. We say he paid the debt that he didn't owe because we owe the debt we couldn't pay. And this is what happened. Christ shed his blood. Why? That we might receive the pardon and find forgiveness in him. Who is like our God who gave his only begotten son why? That he might pardon our iniquity. Listen, God's justice demanded that a price be paid. And in his love, through his perfect righteousness, he paid it. 
Ladies and gentlemen, this is pardon. This is forgiveness on a whole other level than what man affords. Number one, he pardons iniquity. Number two, we read, he does not retain his anger forever. And, and these are um, elements of his forgiveness. So we have, you know, one, two, three, so on and so forth. Now we kind of have an A, B, and C with regard to the elements of his forgiveness. Number one, or A, he, he pardons or takes away, right? Uh, B, he passes over. Did you see that? He pardons it, he passes over. That is, he doesn't gather up our sins to use them against us later. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, He passes by them. He passes over them. He doesn't collect them for later ammunition. And C, he doesn't retain or hang on to. In other words, when God forgives you, he doesn't stay angry at you or sort of smolder behind the scenes. That's something you would do. That's something I would do. It's not what God does. He does not retain his anger. His forgiveness is complete. But why? Why, why is he so gracious and forgiving? I mean, is, it, uh, is there just something about you, you know? Something about me, something about us that just compels him to act with such kindness? No. Not at all. The reasons for God's great forgiveness aren't found in us. They're found in Him. Because, and this is our number three in the list of characteristics, because He delights in mercy. Aren't you glad that you serve a God who delights in mercy? Listen, He doesn't have to kind of develop it. You know, he doesn't have to discipline himself to do it. Uh, He doesn't have to determine within himself to show it. He delights in it. Family, he is well pleased to extend it. He, he, listen, Jesus paid the price demanded of his righteousness. Listen, I'm going to tell you that if, and, and, you know, Jesus was much more than a, than a martyr. He wasn't, but, but when someone lays down their life for a cause, for a purpose, don't you think they want to see that purpose ultimately realized and fulfilled? I mean, if, if you, if you die for a cause, you want that cause to come to pass. Jesus died for our sin so that God might show mercy. Listen to me. God doesn't have to like, oh, he delights. It's not a discipline. He, delight, he wants that for which his son died for to be realized. Does that make sense? He delights to show mercy. God wants to be merciful to you. Here's the catch. You have to receive his mercy. And we receive it in Christ. And if we won't receive Christ, then we not only resist, but we reject his mercy. Micah here highlighting the compassion of God. Uh, he, He has compassion upon us, has provided a way of salvation for us. He will subdue our iniquities. 
He, he loves us, but he won't leave us. So he loves us as we are, but he won't leave us as we are. He, he subdues our, in other words, he grants victory to you over those sins that bind us and casts our sins into the depths of the sea. There's no, in other words, there's no probationary period with God. When you're forgiven, that's it. Your sins are gone. Never to be held over our heads. You know, the, kind of the saying that, you know, he casts our sins in the deepest sea and then puts like the no fishing sign out. You know, he's not going to call them up later. And finally, he says, you will give truth to Jacob, mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers. Uh, God is as truthful as he is merciful. In family, we need both. Uh, mercy and truth. He says, which you have sworn. Don't you love that? I mean, we may fall. We may fail. But God is faithful to his word. He has sworn. If he has said it, he will do it. And if he's spoken it, he will make it good. And if you've not known God's forgiveness, then I would implore you, you can receive it today. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all sin. Repent of your sin. What does that mean? It means turn around. You're going one way, turn around and go the other way. Confess to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive the promise of salvation. Ladies and gentlemen, who is like our God? Let's bow our hearts. God, there is no one like you. Uh, pardoning iniquity, delighting in mercy, casting all of our sin into the depths of the sea. And God, we just want to come before you. We want to humble ourselves in your sight. And Lord, we confess we are a sinful people. And we're asking you, Lord, to be merciful, to restore us, to renew us, to refresh us, Lord, to uh, reinstill that awe of you that we might serve you with all that we are. And we thank you for the promise of your word. God, we ask again that you just renew our hearts. And we'll give you praise.